Well, this past Monday, I decided to go pick up my grandson from preschool. He's four years old and goes a couple days a week. And I thought, well, I'll go take him on a little outing, go to lunch, have some fun with, uh, with little Ross. So I, he wasn't expecting me to, to come pick him up, so I go through the code to get in, the security, and, and uh, he goes, Grandpa! And, and we head on outside, he hops in the back, and as we're pulling out of the parking lot, he says, someday I'm going to be a grown-up. And I thought, oh, really? I said, well, so what's that? What are you going to do when you're a grown-up? He said, I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> he said, I'm going to get a wallet. And I'm going to get money and put it in my wallet. And I'm going to get a truck. So I thought, well, 30 years may pass. He may still have the same goals in life. <laughs> you know, when you're young and before a lot of life has happened, you have expectations. And you imagine, you dream, you think about what will life be like? What will it be like? So you imagine who you might marry. You imagine what your kids will look like. You imagine what kind of career you're going to have. And so this is what we call the ideal, the expectations, the dreams, the imagination. But somewhere in time, little Ross and all the other kids that grow up are going to face reality. (laughs) reality. And the difference between our ideal and the real is the occasion for frustration and pain and loss and failure. Life never goes the way we plan. I think for all of us, as we've gone through the years thinking forward to the next year or to the next decade or what things will be life, what is the expectation or the ideal and what is the real are Two different things. And so we have an occasion for being discouraged. We've talked a little bit about failure. And there are several kinds of what I perceive as failure. One could be, well, we sin against God, or we do something really bad, or we do something really wrong, and we just absolutely fail. It's a painful thing. But a lot of times we fail to realize our expectations. We fail to realize our goals. We fail to achieve what we've been pursuing. And when when we fail, it happens to everyone here, and it happens repeatedly, and it happens your whole life. (laughs) When we fail, Satan is at work to destroy you. He's out to destroy you. And God is at work to build you up. Now the text that we looked at this past week and what we're continuing this morning is found in Luke chapter 22. And as Jesus is speaking to Simon, or we also know him as Peter, his his Greek name, Simon, his Hebrew name, Jesus is... In the last hours with his disciples, he knows that the cross is imminent, and he is about to be betrayed by Judas, and he is trying as best 
as possible to prepare these disciples for life and for ministry. It'd be the same way that we as parents try to prepare our kids for life. But when it's all in the realm of teaching and talking about the ideal, uh, it is yet to be tested. It is yet to be uh, brought with pain into our lives to, to, help, to cause us to realize the difficulty in it. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. In other words, he is, Satan has demanded permission from God. Now, that seems like a, an odd thing, and yet God is sovereign over all. And Satan is at work trying to destroy our lives. He can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. Now, sometimes that causes us to do a few mental gymnastics. <laughs> what about this? Why about this? Why? But just remember that. Satan cannot do anything that God does not permit. And here's what he says. Satan demanded permission to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, the picture was more common for them of taking wheat in a large-like tray that's like a screen and just shaking it. And this is how he's describing what Satan is wanting to do. We talked about how the you is plural. You all. He is desiring for every one of the followers of Jesus, Satan is out to sift you like wheat, shake you up, destroy you, cast you down to the ground. And I think that the longer you live, the more you recognize that that we are in an intense spiritual warfare every day of our lives, and Satan would destroy your marriage, your family, your kids, your life. Everything that you would value, everything that you would treasure, he wants to destroy. And one of his most powerful weapons is discouragement. Discourage you. Here's what he says. He says, Satan wants to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. There's a word fail. You say, oh, he's already failed. <laughs> Peter, Peter has a record of failure. He's a very public guy, very outspoken. And so it, it's, it's seen by more people. But, but Peter has already been marked, like we have been, by multiple failures al- along his life. So how can Jesus say that I, I'm praying that your faith may not fail? He means ultimately fail. We're going to fail. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So personally, and and he means when he says you, I prayed for your faith, you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, how does Jesus know that Peter's going to turn around? He knows. (laughs) When you've turned again, when you've turned back, when you've recognized your failure. Of course, the failure he's speaking about is Peter's denial of Christ. That happens right before he goes to the cross. And he says, when you've turned again, in other words, Peter, you will be restored. 
from your failure. And I want you then to strengthen your brothers. So it's not just about you, Peter. It's not just about you. You failed. You failed again. You failed again. You're going to fail again. But I've prayed for you that your faith might not ultimately fail. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. So the same could be said about Moses. God's work in Moses was really a work in everyone else. Your life is not isolated. Your life is not in a container. Your, your life affects other lives. You realize that? This isn't all about you. In our, in our uh, culture, we tend to think very individually. We think, you know, I'm, this is my life. But your life affects everyone around you. Everyone. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, it's interesting, what I don't have on the screen here, but the following verses, but Peter's initial response, he says this, he says, Lord, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Well, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? What if the Lord questioned your loyalty? You'd probably say, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll serve you. I think all of us at points in our lives have said that. No matter what, no matter what. I will follow the Lord. Well, Peter, Peter says it. And then the Lord's response is, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. Wow. Seems probably impossible to Peter, but it's actually what happened. So the title of our message is Love is Stronger Than Your Failure. And what I'd like to focus on this morning is how Jesus restored Peter. Because Peter really failed big time. He was the foremost failure of all of these disciples. But Jesus was going to restore him back to a position that would affect all of the other disciples, and really all of the world. The context of the Gospels, we, of course, have one Gospel and four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all give us an account of these final days. And we see the life of Peter through all of them. But I'd like for you this morning to turn to John 21, which is the last chapter in the Gospel of John. And this last chapter really tells the story of how Jesus restores Peter. In the beginning of of chapter 21, it says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So they're, they're together, a few of the disciples. And Peter makes this announcement in verse 3. I am going fishing. I'm going fishing. Now, as I, as I 
stop to think about this, you'd say, well, that's normal because that, that was his livelihood. That was his profession. He had a fishing business. But I think more than that, that you, you realize at the very end, Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again, he appeared to many. How is Peter feeling right now about his life? How is Peter feeling about his life? I don't think you could get lower than how he feels. Peter, on numerous occasions, has betrayed his faith and trust in Christ. And and at the hour where he should stand up and speak up and follow through, he fails. And he fails in a very public way. So he has really, I would think, no hope of restoration. So he says, I'm going fishing. And I think that's usually, you could say, well, that's a way to escape your problems. I'm going fishing. <laughs> so a lot of guys can do that. I'm, gonna, I'm going fishing, or I'm going hunting, or I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do, it's kind of like an escape. I think it was more than just an escape for Peter to go back to fishing. He was going back to what he knew. That was his life before Christ. Do you remember the time that, that Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee and they were fishing there and he said to them, follow me. That began a three and a half year journey of a relationship with those disciples of Jesus. So for three and a half years, he's been taught, he's been mentored, he's been discipled. He's seen the miracles of Jesus. He saw Jesus crucified. He saw him buried and he's seen him rise again. He's seen all of it. His life was profoundly changed. But Peter denied the Lord. At the very end, when it counted most, he denied the Lord. So he has failed. So what do you do when you fail? Well, go back to where I was three and a half years ago. I go back to what's comfortable. I go back to what I know. I go back to what I'm good at. I think we're all that way. You could call it an escape. It's, it's, it's like, you know what, I did that for three and a half years, and I don't, I really don't want to try it again. You can understand that, can't you? Can you, can you, you see, why would I even try that again? Because I have, every time I do, I fail. So I'm going to go out and fishing. I'm good at fishing. And it's interesting what it says here. In verse 3, it says, They said to him, We will also come with you. So here Peter is the leader. Not only is he going back to fishing, he's leading all the others back to fishing. They're not, they're not doing ministry. They're not going to the ends of the earth. What were Jesus' final words? Go to, the, go to all the world and preach the gospel. In other words, your task, your assignment that I'm giving to you is to go spread the good news of eternal life to the world. Well, I'm going fishing. And I think it was born out of discouragement more than anything else. Not because he didn't believe, not because he didn't love the Lord, but because he didn't want to fail again. So I'm going to go back to what I know and what I'm good at. So what does the end of verse 3 says? And they went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. It's the story of our lives fishing. <laughs> Isn't that interesting on a couple fronts, Peter goes back to what he knows. 
Peter goes back to what he's good at. Say, I can do this. You know what? I may not be able to do this. I may not be able to follow Christ. I may not be, be a good disciple, but I can do this. I can fish. And all night he fishes and he catches nothing. But it also takes us back to the story earlier when they were following Jesus. This was very early in that three and a half year period. Remember when Jesus came by the sea and they'd fished all night? And he says to them, cast on the other side of the boat. This is about to, ready to happen again. But I think that when, when, I, when I look at those words, when I go back to what I know and what I'm good at and what I do and pour my life into me and what I do, I can work my whole life and produce nothing. Because the energy of my world, my life, my doings, if it it doesn't fit into God's plan, it's worth nothing. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with fishing. There's something wrong with fishing with Peter because that's not what he was instructed to do. But it was comfortable for him. You see, we can often look at success and failure in a different light. As as I shared before, sometimes I look at failure as being I sinned or I committed some sin, but sometimes failure, I failed to achieve the goals that I've, I've had. But really, God's measurement and description of success is all that matters, doesn't it? Because at the end, we all stand before Him. We all give an account to Him. He is our Creator. He is the one who loved us. He created us. He called us. He commissioned us. And so if I'm judging by my own standard or by the world's standard, I could get off really quickly. You know, but that, but that pressure is so strong. We think about it in the world today. It's really about how much you can accumulate, isn't it? Wealth. A successful person or a successful businessman is someone who has accumulated a lot of stuff, a lot of money, a lot of things. What does Jesus say about success? It's, it's more about giving, isn't it? It's giving. So it's, it's, it's almost a polar opposite that the world would say accumulate, gather, build, bank it, buy it, build it. And Jesus is saying give it, give it. And the greatest expression was giving of his own life. So these are diametrically opposed. And it's a bit of a paradox. What about leadership? We think, you know what, that person is very successful. What a great leader. We see all the crowd stand. They walk out on the stage. People stand up and applaud. Great leader, great leader, great leader. Jesus said this, who is is king of kings and lord of lords, creator of the universe, comes into the room and he says, I am one among you who serves. And he actually began washing their feet. Let the one who wants to be great among you become least. So it's not lifting up, boasting, accumulating things. Jesus said, more than your outward appearance, I'm concerned about your heart. And wow, we've got, you know, it's amazing to me how much we Photoshop today. You know, it's really kind of, it's easier than going on a diet. You can just fix yourself. (laughs) 
But the externalism, how how do I look? How do you look? How does it look? How does it look? And what the Lord says is man man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. The heart's what you are. We focus on the physical. God focuses on the spiritual. We focus on the temporal. God focuses on the eternal. God's evaluation of whether or not you succeed in life is the only opinion that really matters. So success is when God is pleased. And he's not going to be pleased with perfection because I can't do that, but he is pleased with faith. And that's what he mentions in Luke chapter 22. I love the way that Jesus Christ takes the initiative. You know, when we're out there working, 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 and there's no fish. <laughs> we caught nothing. But we feel like we're really doing something because we're working hard. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm working, 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 working. Let's look at me. I'm working, working, working. There's nothing. Jesus is loving enough to confront you. He seeks you out. This is what he did with them. He comes, and he, asks, and he does it by asking a question. He doesn't make an accusation. He says, you haven't caught anything, have you? <laughs> and then he gives a command to cast a net on the other side. And what was their response? I think by now they're starting to put it together. They believe his words. They do what he says. And they, they bring in a catch of fish that is about ready to break the nets, just like before. Peter gets out of the boat because they're near the shore and he comes in to see the Lord. And the invitation is this. He says, Peter, come and have breakfast. There's already a fire there. And it's interesting when you, when you think about a fire, say you go, if you like to go camping or go out fishing, you know, a fire is a place where everybody kind of gathers around. It's kind of like a table. It's, you know, a fire, people come and warm themselves. And there's what we call fellowship or communion or relationship and intimacy with Jesus. So here is what, what Jesus is inviting Peter to come and sit down at the fire with him. That's a bit uncomfortable for Peter to come and again be intimate and have fellowship and communion with Jesus because he remembers back to what he just did. A lot of times, we really don't want to be open and honest and transparent about how we're doing. We don't want to. It's uncomfortable. But I find this, that, that typically we like, we like to do that with medical doctors. Why is that? Why is it that you, you like to just tell your doctor everything? Now, I've been with my father-in-law when he goes to church. <laughs> it's like he can't, everybody's pointing, hey, doc, what's, <laughs> I got this. <laughs> I said, how do you deal with that, dad? I said, oh, it's, it's part of it. He said, but, you know, he said, he said, it's interesting that people trust me. He said, they'll just spill out everything, every problem, every need they have. Why? Because they believe the doctor can help them. A lot of times we're not going to open up and be transparent because we don't really believe a person can help us. 
Why would I throw my stuff out there? Why would I throw out my problems out there? Why would I, why would I lay that out? But Jesus has invited them into a close, intimate, personal relationship with himself. And folks, it is not comfortable. But it becomes comfortable. Because he lovingly and kindly and carefully helps us acknowledge where we're wrong, how we've sinned, how we've failed. And his, his goal is restoring us. You remember we talked about how the goal of Satan is to destroy us? He's called the accuser. Look at your life. You're a failure. Everything you touch, you mess up. You failed. You failed again. You failed. Look at business. Look at your family. Look at your marriage. Look at your health. Look at your life. Failure, failure, failure. You, have that, you ever have that voice in your ear? Everything you do is fail, fail, fail. And, and in Revelation it says he accuses us day and night. You listen to that voice, it will just absolutely take you down. So Satan the accuser, what does it call Jesus? He's our advocate. He's our advocate. He steps in and he's for you. He's for you to forgive you, to heal you, to cleanse you, to get your feet back on track. He's for you. And he also has the supernatural ability to do that. He is able to be your advocate and help you, to restore you completely. You know what my favorite part of the 23rd Psalm is? I think probably most people, even non-church people, know the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. That's my favorite part. Why? Because I need it. How often? Every day. Big ways, little ways. This is what Jesus does as your advocate. Not only does he pray for you, he says, I will pray for you, Peter. But he's there for you, interceding for you, and helping you through that. At this fire, it's interesting that in, in all of the New Testament, of course, the, the New Testament is written in the Greek, Greek language. There's only two places where these words, coals of fire, are mentioned. Coals of fire. The one is when Peter was around the coals of fire, warming himself outside of Caiaphas' house while they're putting him on trial. Do you remember what happened there? That was when he denied him. So you say, I think it's really more than just irony. He comes, he's, he's warming himself at the fire, the same type of fire, the coals, where he denied the Lord three times. Remember he said, aren't you one of his followers? No. Aren't you one of his followers? I've seen you before. No, I'm not. Third time, no, and he was swearing about it. No, I'm not. And the rooster crowed. And he remembered, it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Last time he was at coals of fire. Now he's at another coals of fire. (laughs) These are the kind of coals of fire of his demise, his failure. These are the coals of fire of his restoration. And it's interesting also that he was denying the Lord Something he said he would never do. 
in chapter 22, said, Lord, of all people, I'm committed. If, if anyone loves you, I love you. Basically, what Peter was saying is, I love you more than anyone else loves you. So here's the question. In verse 15 of chapter 21. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In other words, more than the other disciples. Do you love me? Now, I think that every relationship, (laughs) you either ask or get asked this question, do you love me? And what's the answer? Of course I love you. (laughs) But really, what you do is stronger than what you say. So Jesus has him again at the coals of fire. He asks him, and he asks him three times. This is what is (laughs) amazing. And I think this is the way he restores Peter. Coals of fire, and he says, do you love me? And, and the English word love is, is the Greek word agape, which is a unique word, and the kind of love that is unconditional action. It is dependent on nothing else. There are other kinds of love, but every other kind of love is dependent on something. Eros, between a man and a wife, is dependent on a relationship. Storge, the word for love, is dependent on I like something. I love this. Like we'd say, I, I love this car, or I love this house, or I love... Phileo is the word to we share the same passion. We're following the same path. And so when Jesus asks the question to Peter, he's asking using the word agape, which is the kind of love that Jesus expressed to us when he died for us. It's important to understand this because when, when he uses the word love, Jesus loved his disciples to the end. He loved the world to the end. and To the end meaning he gave his life all the way through. And there was nothing about the world that was attractive. There was no reason. It wasn't, oh, the world loved Jesus, so the, the Jesus loved him back. No, it was what we call unconditional, sacrificial love. And so he asks Peter, do you love me? And what does he say? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he doesn't use agape. He uses phileo. Yes, Lord. Peter, do you agape me? Love me unconditionally, sacrificially, love to the end, die for me? Oh, Lord, you you know I phileo you. I have brotherly love for you. Now, Peter knows exactly the words Jesus is using. But I think he, he is afraid to put it out there again. Oh, yes, Lord. <laughs> he thought, I'm, if I say that again, I'm just going to crash and burn again. So I think here's what's happening. A couple things that, that Jesus is, is, is telling him and showing him the incredible love that, that he has for Peter. And Peter is recognizing in humility, there's no way I can love him like he's loved me. So here's what he says. Jesus says, tend my lambs. 
take care of my sheep. Now, I think this, as much as anything, is Peter's restoration. In other words, I'm giving you your responsibility back. This is what, when I left the first time, this is what I asked you to do. Go spread the gospel. Tell the good news. Take care of these responsibilities. But now he's given up. He's gone fishing again. He doesn't want to try anymore. But he's saying, reaffirming. See, folks, failure does not take you out of the game. Failure is not your problem. It's how you respond to your failure. It's how you respond to your failure. You're going to fail. You're going to fail a lot of times. Sometimes little ways, sometimes really big ways. But your life will not be defined by your failures. It's how you respond to your failure. So three times he asks this, do you love me? Do you love me? And then finally, Jesus will ask the question, do you phileo me? (laughs) He kind of brings it down a notch. And so here's what he has said. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. He's reaffirming his confidence that God will work through him. You know what I think is so amazing, too, is that we think of Jesus Christ when, when you failed. When you, when you, you don't want to be with him. You know, you don't. Here, here's how I feel. I'll just be honest with you. You say, well, you're a pastor. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm still human. Okay, when I sin, I don't feel like praying. I just feel horrible. And I don't feel like listening to Christian music, and I don't like reading my Bible. When, when my life is not in order. And so, and the worst thing to do is to, is to walk away from my relationship with Christ when I'm not doing well. But I just don't want to be there because I feel ashamed, I feel guilty, I feel like my life, I'm a loser. I don't want to be there, but it's the very place I need to be. It's the very place I need to be. And it's hard, but you see, what he does is he forgives and he forgives. It was even Peter that said, Lord, how many times do we forgive someone? Seven times? Jesus said, no, seven times 70. In other words, you never quit forgiving. I get tired of confessing my sins. Do you? I get tired of going and apologizing to God. Why? Because I've done it so many times, and I feel ashamed. He never gets tired of forgiving. He never gets tired of it. Because the last time he forgave you, it's out of his remembrance. He doesn't keep a record of that. It's what he says. I've separated your sins from you as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember your sins no more. So I come to him again. It's, It's like it's fresh. He doesn't get tired of you coming to him. So when I come to him, I confess my sins. The best place for me, when I'm crashing and burning, when I've failed in everything I've touched, when everything I've done, the place is to come to him. To come to the coals of fire, he forgives, he reaffirms, and he is not a Savior who punishes. I think this is one of the most important things to understand about the way God functions. God does not punish his children. 
He corrects them. He disciplines them. You ever notice a shepherd? He's got the shepherd's crook. You know, a poke, a pull, a nod. That's the kind of correction. And you know what? When you're kind of drifting over here, the Lord takes the initiative, pull you back, poke you, prod you, correct you, chasten you. But it's not, it's not because he's trying to, oh, I'm just, you, you, you've got it coming now. That's how you feel as a parent sometimes. Is <laughs> that okay, am I correcting my kids or am I punishing them? He's not like that. Because the punishment for your sin has already taken place. And it took place on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, your sins were paid for and punishment was dealt out. There is no more punishment for believers. Remember hearing the story of a father and daughter up in Canada and staying in a cabin and they saw in the distance this prairie fire coming right toward them. Of course, when you, when, when you experience a prairie fire, some of you have experienced fires, there's nothing, there's nowhere you can go. They move so fast. And they thought there's going to be certain death and destruction. So the father took his daughter out into the middle of the field, and he lit the grass on fire. And it burned a big patch. And then they went and stood in the middle of the burned grass. And the prairie fire came and went around them. You can't burn what's already been burned. That's how you stand as a Christian. Your sins have been paid for. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, if you have believed upon His free gift of eternal life for you, then your sins are paid for. The punishment Jesus took upon Himself, the punishment you should have had, He has paid for. Your sins, past sins, present sins, future sins. Now, I've had people say to me, oh, yeah, but boy, if I knew that all my future sins were paid for, then people are just going to go out and do whatever they want. Not if you understand His love for you. No. It doesn't give you license. It makes you just thankful. I'm just thankful that my sins are paid for. Everything I've ever done, everything I've done this week, everything I'm going to do until the day I die, it has been paid for. The, the ground has been scorched. There is no fire that can burn. But God does correct you. He does correct He lovingly, like you correct your children, because it's, it's like you're moving them in this direction, okay? Nudging them this way. I'm, I'm helping you. And so Jesus has taken Peter, okay, Peter, I'm nudging you out of love, not punishing him for denying him. He doesn't do that. That's already paid for. He nudges him to the fire. He asks him, do you love me? Three times. And three times he says, go feed my sheep. Go tend to my sheep. Go care for my sheep. And he revalidates Peter's role. Now I think that one of the most beautiful things is, is how Peter's life has changed as a result of this. When you read at the end of the New Testament, First and Second Peter, these are two epistles written probably in, in the early uh, seventh decade uh, since the birth of Christ. You're probably 62, 63 before Peter was martyred. 
uh, he, he's writing First and Second Peter. He said, "This man's different. He's humble. He's he's broken. He's sensitive. He's tender. He's not perfect." In fact, even after this, Peter continued to make mistakes. <laughs> we read about it in Galatians. You know, he started getting pressure from the Pharisees and the, the legalists, and he started acting like a legalist. And Paul called him out. So we can tend to f- continue the struggle with failure. But I believe this, that Peter was able to help everyone else because he understood. You know, when you've never failed, and I know we don't have anyone here like that, but some of you may think, I haven't really failed that much. You don't really have much of an effect on other people. But when you have failed, and so publicly, I believe this. See, a person would say, deny the Lord three times. Or you could name any sin and say, well, you know what? You did that. You're done. Look, you just ruined your life. So the Lord's going to put you on the shelf because of what you did. Okay, so just wait till he comes back. You sit over here and wait till he comes back. You, you just messed up. I believe this, that the person that has messed up becomes more useful than before. They understand it. They know it. They feel it. They've experienced it. And so out of Peter's failure, he can encourage others to say, listen, I failed too, and I failed a lot. But here's how the Lord lovingly came to me and restored me and put me back on track doing what I ought to do. It's not too late. Proverbs 24, verse 16 says, A righteous man falls seven times and rises up again. That's what our lives look, look like. Falter, 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 fail, fail, fail. But the Lord's there every time. There to restore, there to forgive. The last part that we look at in verse 19, he says to Peter, follow me. Follow me. There's another discourse here that's very interesting I'll not get into this morning, but, but it comes back to simply follow me. Follow me. Every day we get up, we don't follow him perfectly. But every day we confess our need for him. Every day we ask forgiveness for our sins, which is really a thank you for what he's done. And every day we follow him. And I believe that after your greatest failure may become your greatest usefulness. And such it was for the life of Peter. So our conclusion today, you will falter and fail along the path of life many, many times, big ways, small ways. That is not what defines your life. It's how you respond to it. You're going to listen to the voice of the accuser, loser, 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 and spiral into depression. Or you're going to realize that you have an advocate. You have an advocate. So our takeaway, love is stronger than your failure. Remember you have an advocate, Jesus Christ. He didn't just come to save you. He lives for you. He intercedes for you. He walks with you. He's there for you. He invites you to the fire. He reminds you of his forgiveness. He reminds you of what you're called to do. Don't check out. Don't give up. Failure may be the greatest gift God has allowed in your life to bring you to the closeness and dependency upon him that you need.
Father, I pray that you would help us not listen to the accuser, not listen to the voice of the one who would destroy our lives. And when we would tend to go back to fishing, to what we know, to what we're good at, Lord, I pray that we would welcome the invitation back to the fire. You remind us of your love for us, your forgiveness, your cleansing, and the fact that you are our advocate. And we still have work to do. Lord, I pray we'd press on with more sensitivity, more humility, and more gratitude for your goodness to us, your incredible love to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.